Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. -on -one. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Before we begin today, I would like to invite uh, the audience um, to support this show in one of two very easy ways. Uh, number one is, um, please take a minute and go to iTunes and write a very short review of the show. This would help us spread the word so that other people can enjoy those fantastic interviews with some of the most incredible people that I have had the pleasure of doing in the past couple of years. And number two, of course, is you can simply go to our donations page and donate any funds that you deem appropriate, and they would be used to make this show bigger and better. And uh, thank you very much in advance for your support. Today, our guest on the show is Professor Hugo de Garis. Professor DeGaris is a well-known uh, researcher in the field of artificial intelligence, but perhaps he's better known um, in the mainstream as the person who coined, or the prophet of doom, if you will, who coined the term the Artilect War. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Professor DeGaris. Yeah. Hi, Nicola. Uh, by the way, would you mind if I call you Hugo during the interview? Yeah, that's fine. That's, that's what I'm used to. Thank you, Hugo. Really appreciate it. Um, so for those uh, viewers and listeners who are not familiar with you, let me begin our conversation a little bit further back in time with um, the reasons of why and how you got interested in doing work in the field of artificial intelligence. Ah. <laughs> Being honest, it, it's sort of it, you know, historically it, it's sort of a plan B. Uh, my my deep love, and, and now that I'm retired, I've gone back to it. In fact, my deep love was mathematical physics, and when I became a grad student uh, in the 70s, that was that was in London uh, with with a, a rather famous professor, David Bohm. Now, any physicist, especially in quantum mechanics, would know that name. He's a you know a very famous figure in in that domain. So when I was a grad student under him, it became increasingly clear to me that the probability of getting a job as, as a mathematical physics professor was virtually zero, right? So, so I gradually drifted off and uh, got into artificial intelligence, which I thought, yeah, I could do that. I could get a job in that because you know, it was an expanding field and everything, whereas theoretical physics professorships uh, slots were you know, dwindling away to zero. So uh, I, I sort of, in the very early days, drifted into it. But then uh, you know, its potential became increasingly clear to me. I, I learned oh, way back uh, about the potential of Moore's Law. Uh, if your listener is not familiar with Moore's Law, that's Gordon Moore. He, he's still alive. He must be in his 80s now. He was um, one of the co-founders of the microchip company called Intel. And he noticed in the mid-60s that the number of bits you could cram, or number of transistors you could cram onto a chip was doubling every year or so. So uh, he wrote about this trend, and now this trend has been immortalized by the label Moore's Law. So I start, you know, I'm a numbers person, you know, a mathematical physicist. So I started you know, doing my own numbers and saying, well, let's assume this trend continues till around, say, 2020. 
And by that stage, uh, easily uh, technology would be manipulating one bit of information on a single atom, right? And if you're doing that, then uh, quantum optics says that that atom can switch its state in a femtosecond. And if you then calculate, like, say, take a single grain of sugar or, or say, a grain of sand that's been nanotech in the near future, and it's manipulating one bit on one atom, then the potential computing capacity, the number of bit flips per second in that uh, grain of uh, sand, so let's say one millimeter cubed, it outperforms the equivalent bit flip rate, information handling rate of the human brain by a factor I calculated of uh, a quintillion, like a hundred trillion times. Sorry, a million trillion times more than the human brain. Ten now, to being the twenty-fourth. Yeah, well, if, if you have a handheld object, yeah, but this is just just a tiny grain of sand, right? Even th even that grain of sand would outperform the human brain by something like a, a million trillion times. Mm -hmm. So that that for me was the writing on the wall. And I'm also very much a political animal. So I'm not just a scientist, techie guy. I'm also very political. Uh, in the early 80s, I was involved in the men's lib or masculist uh, movement in Europe. I mean, you know, we went to the parliament and so forth. So being a political animal, uh, I like extracting the political consequences of future technologies. In fact, my first two books have, have this common theme. You know, they, they extrapolate future technological trends and then try to extract the political consequences of those trends. So if humanity has the capability in the next decade or so of creating these godlike capabilities in, in technologies, what on earth is that, you know, what kind of impact will that have on humanity? I mean, so for me, the writing's on the wall, right? Sooner or later, humanity this century has to choose. Do, do we build, I call them artillects, that's artificial intellect, you know, these godlike, massively intelligent machines. So humanity, humanity's major choice this century is do, do we build these artillects or not? And when I uh, you know, tried to look with, with a very cold eye, you know, and a very cold, harsh, analytic eye at the longer-term consequences, I, I, I came almost inevitably to the conclusion that you know, the, the stake here is so high. We're, we're not talking about the possible survival of a country in, in a major war. Like, I mean, you're, 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 you're a Bulgarian, right? So you, you know, in the Eastern I'm Bloc, you Canadian. Yeah, okay, well, <laughs> right. So you're, you're probably highly conscious of, um, in, in the Second World War, the huge effort that the Russians uh, undertook to, to rid themselves of, of the Nazis. I mean, a huge sacrifice. What? 20, 30? 20 million, million? officially, and, and unofficially they say another 5 to 10 million that Stalin yeah, took yeah, care yeah. of. Yeah, so. that's, that's, yeah, that's what I hear. So, you know, at, at great expense. So the major wars of the 20th century were at, at the nation-nation level. Whereas if, if, if we have a major war, you know, a passionate war this century uh, with 21st century weapons, uh, the, the passion level will never be so because this time is not survival of a country, right? This time it's about the survival of a species, us as human beings, because these artilects potentially could become godlike. They, they could be you know, trillions of trillions of trillions of times above the human capacities.
Hopefully that wouldn't be happening again. Wow. <laughs> this is China. <laughs> I am very much interested in discussing further the concept of the, the Archilect and the Archilect and the consequent Archilect war and the division of humanity to Terrans and Cosmists and Cyborgs. But before we get there, allow me to challenge you on one point, and that is the in uninterrupted progression of Moore's law taken to the level of artificial intelligence. And uh, let me just uh, challenge this by quoting the, uh, a couple of people, at least three I, I can come up with right now. Gordon Moore himself doesn't seem to subscribe to the concept of the singularity and it has opposed, as far as I understand, uh, the fact that he, Moore's law has implications towards uh, a singularity. Um, another thing is, just yesterday, I think, or a couple of days ago, I posted a, a short video of another physicist, theoretical physicist, Michio Kaku, who went on big thing to argue that Moore's law would be dead within a decade, and that the laws of physics and thermodynamics basically necessitate that we would have serious, very serious trouble going beyond silicon. Um, and uh, the, the problems with that are two. At least uh, one of them was, uh, you know, if you're talking about the, the molecular computer or single-bit computation, then we have a number of issues. One of them is the Heisenberg principle of uncertainty. In other words, we don't know where those bits and pieces are anymore. Secondly, uh, we have the problem of decoherence and uh, issues such as wiring or... Uh, uh, connecting those bits and pieces, in interpretation, uh, leakage, uh, and so on. And the third person is actually a person that I interviewed very recently, and he his name is Ram, uh, Ramez Naam, and Mez worked on a Bing search engine, and he said that the artificial intelligence on Bing and Google is absolutely amazing. And yet it's nothing, in his his opinion, nothing to what we are and he doesn't see how we're ever going to get to, to human level. And, and a fourth person that comes to mind actually right now is David Ferrucci himself, whom I interviewed here a few weeks ago, uh, who is the team leader behind um, Watson, who defeated uh, the best uh, human Jeopardy players in the world, is also very skeptical uh, as to whether we can take Watson to towards the singularity. So how do you address those, uh, all those uh, skepticisms from, from people who are within that field? Well, can I be blunt? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> they, That's absolutely. They, they remind me of people in 1902, 1902, who were proving and suggesting that man would never fly. <laughs> And what happened the following year? Uh, so where to start? Well, if, if I look at ourselves, we, you know, we human beings, we, we are the existence proof that it is possible to put molecules together in, in a certain way. We, we don't quite yet know how to do that, but, but we're learning. Uh, you know, to put, put molecules together in a certain way and create a conscious and highly intelligent machine. So, so there, there is a way in nature to, to do this. 
and we're making progress, exponential progress, not only in electronics, but also in neuroscience. And I, I see a, a great wedding coming in the future between these two things. I, I see Moore's law surviving at least for another decade. And even by 2020, I mean, the electronic capacity will be just, just be enormous. So even if Moore's law starts to fizzle out after that time, it, it, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. I, I don't see that happening. But uh, you know, even by 2020 standards, what uh, the artifact still becomes possible. I, I see the real problem is our relative ignorance of the microcircuitry of of our neurons, of our brains. We don't we don't yet know. We don't understand how how this microcircuitry works. Like you know how 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 does the brain make a decision? What is a memory? Uh, what is what is consciousness? What is free will? You know these these sorts of deep issues that neuroscience can't yet really answer. But but I see that coming. And then even even today, if you think about it, today our best most powerful supercomputers have already reached the equivalent bit flip you know, bit processing rate of the human brain. Our supercomputers, supercomputers today, uh, state of the art, is about 10 uh, petaflops. That's 10, 10 to the power 16 bits per second. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's the estimated processing rate of the human brain, which, which you can quickly calculate. Like we have about 100 billion neurons. That's 10 to the 11. Uh, each neuron on average connects to about 10,000 others. So that's 10 to the 4. And roughly maximum each uh, synapse, you know, that's a connection between two neurons, is signaling at about 10 bits a second maximum. So you multiply these three numbers together, so 10 to the 11 times 10 to the 4 times 10 to the 1, and you get 10 to the 16. Mm -hmm. Well, in that little grain of sand, uh, you get you know, hugely more than that. You can calculate quite easily how many atoms in that little grain of sand, and they're all flipping in... Uh, femtoseconds. So, you know, the, the potential of the technology, even, even if Moore's law fails after a decade, it's still hugely superior to, to what the human brain can do. So, so I see physics, in a sense, utterly eclipsing what, what biology offers. I mean, and one neuron, what's it doing? It's, it's basically processing a few bits per second. You know, it's just nothing. So when quantum computers come, and I, I see that coming, in fact, that's one of my research interests, I'm looking into uh, femto femtotech, and uh, another one is topological quantum computing (TQC). Mm -hmm. uh, the basic idea there is is store your quantum bit, you know, your information, store it in a what's called a topological quantum field, uh, which which is sort of robust uh, because it has these weird topological properties. You do not lose the information, so so it's robust. So if you, if you can do this, then you can scale up to you know huge number of um, bits, and then because it's a quantum computer, you, you get a performance increase of two to power n compared to today's classical computers. Mm -hmm. So if if our future artifacts become quantum computers, <sighs> yeah, all those huge numbers I've just given you, they, they go out the door. I mean, but it's a little bit more than just numbers, isn't it? Because uh, numbers are very important. There's no doubt about yeah. that. But still, that's kind of like the hardware requirement for building a, an artificial intelligence or an artifact, as you call them. But there's a lot more than just the the sort of brute force. There is, there is the the as you put it, the 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 knowledge that comes about how those different 
bits and pieces get connected and get utilized in a in a coherent unity to produce yeah, intelligence, agreed. right? Yeah, agreed. Yes, agreed. So I I see. Yeah, I agree with you perfectly. I see there are two uh, preconditions for for creating artificial intelligence. Uh, let's say at human level, one of course is just the the raw bit rate. You know, being able to you're know, having enough hardware at enough speed to to be able to do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, that condition, you know, just recently, like this year, last year, has now been satisfied with our supercomputers. We've, yeah. we've now reached that goal. Yeah. So the second one now, and that's a major challenge, of course, it comes from neuroscience, and and that is understanding the the functioning, the principles of the micro, as it's called, the micro circuitry of the brain. And, you know how how do all these neurons connect up, mm -hmm. and that's still a challenge. That's still still open, and it's sort of hard to say how many decades that that will take to to um, decipher, but uh, you know. Progress is uh, exponential. So, well, Ray Kurzweil, for example, is estimating 2020s sometime. Yeah. Uh, by, by the end of the 2020s, we'll probably have a pretty thorough understanding of, of how the human brain works. And then, of course, the, the brain builders, once they have those principles coming from neuroscience, they just quickly translate them into their machines. So, so then I anticipate a kind of wedding between the neuroscientists and the neuroengineers, right? The, the the two will, like, in physics you have uh, theoretical physics and practical physics, but they're really just two branches of the same subject. And so I can imagine uh, neuroengineers and neuroscientists will will do the same. They'll just become, you know, the the applied and the theory of the same the same subject. And and so future neuroscientists will test their models, you know, their their theories of how the brain works on machines because so why is it machines so why is it that some people like the ones that i've mentioned before who have seemingly accomplished the cutting edge of those fields fail to see those trends is why i wonder i mean yes you're totally right that lord kevin i think lord kelvin was his name perhaps who in like 1895 famously pronounced that you know heavier than air, air aircraft are totally impossible to build and then two bicycle builders from the United <laughs> States proved him right. wrong. Yes, yeah. that, that's true. But, but why is it that, that, that those people in the cutting edge, I mean, David Ferrucci is the guy who pretty much built Watson with his team. Uh, Michio Kaku is a very well-known uh, mm. theorist. Uh, Ramez Naam was a Bing artificial intelligence, uh, part of the team that built the Bing artificial intelligence. Why are they failing to see well, the writing I wouldn't, on the wall? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call uh, Kaku an expert in artificial intelligence. You know, he's, he's a string theorist. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I have great admiration for him mm -hmm. as a string theorist. And, you know, I, I'm struggling through his, you know, his textbooks. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he's, he's a bit of an amateur when it comes to artificial brains and so forth. He's, you know, he's, he's a very popular, uh, what's the term? Interpreter, I guess, of uh, popular science, you know, to the to the masses, and so artificial intelligence is just one of his topics. So, uh, well, that's Kaku. Uh, as for the others, um, the Watson people, well, it's just a theory. Um, maybe they're too close to the problem. Uh, they're they're thinking maybe future intelligence lies in just more of the same of what they're doing, and they're very conscious of the limits of what they're doing. 
but but I see future uh, future AI is not coming from uh, von Neumann type computers, you know, based on on today's basic assumptions, where you have a distinction between hardware and software. Like future neuro machines, neuro circuitry based machines, the hardware software distinction dies away because mm -hmm. you know, it's it's the connectivity and and the waiting between the connections that that's what's important. So it's a whole other paradigm. So, and what about emerging intelligence as an internal as an alternative way of, of uh, coming up with um, artificial intelligence? Um, you say, mean AI to, to make AI? Uh, no, say for example, it emerges. There are theories uh, that say a artificial intelligence might emerge, say on on the global internet. Oh, for example, well, okay. so, so you have so a number of uh, interconnected nodes which are already existing. Though the number is growing exponentially, mm. um, and perhaps once they reach a certain point and a certain level of individual sophistication, the total would provide the the substrate where such intelligence could potentially emerge. Well. Uh, I suppose all I can say is maybe. <laughs> uh, this, this reminds me of kind of a debate I've been having for quite a few years with uh, Ben Gersel. You've interviewed him, haven't you? Absolutely, yes. Okay. So uh, he, he and I uh, differ somewhat on basic strategies towards AI. Like uh, I got interviewed recently in Australia on, on this point. Uh, I, I see two broad approaches towards reaching human level AI. One, one is I just label simply the engineering approach, and that, that's essentially Ben's. And the other one is just copy the brain approach. And now we know the second one, you know, copy the brain. Sooner or later, that, that will work, right? Be because we know the final product. And if we copy the brain in our technologies closely enough, uh, yeah, by definition, it, it, it will work. And then we'll create a uh, three-dimensional, living, conscious, intelligent machine. So, so we know that route. Uh, will be productive. Uh, the big question, of course, is how long will it take? Now, Ben's approach, um, he claims he, he will just engineer it with, with his AGI, that's artificial general intelligence. Today's AI is basically very narrow, you know, lots and lots of little narrow applications like, like Google and, and uh, um, fraud detection on checks and, and routing in cell phone. Yeah, there's lots of applications now. But they're all, all very specialized and rather narrow. But Ben, ben thinks uh, just by thinking, and he's got a major book coming out pretty soon called Building Better Minds, where he's put out, you know, he's been thinking about, you know, uh, Ben's a genius, right? He's a very, very smart guy. So he's been thinking about this problem for a long time. So he, he wrote up his ideas in this book that'll be, be out pretty soon. And he just wants to implement it. So he's now based in Hong Kong and he's collect, collecting quite a team. And he will try to implement his ideas that, that are in this book on how, how to engineer uh, an artificial intelligence that has general intelligence that, that's like humans. You know, we, we can tackle mm -hmm. all kinds of different problems and solve them successfully. Mm -hmm. So it's a big debate. It's a big question mark. You know, which of those two broad approaches will pan out faster? And, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, ben, ben may surprise me in a year or two. Uh, on the other hand, um, in a sense, if you think about it, with we, you know, the AI research, I call them intelligists, the people mm -hmm. who, who try to you know, generate artificial intelligence. 
the intelligists have been trying for how long? God, over nearly nearly sixty years, right? Since nearly the nineteen fifties, if not earlier. Yeah, yeah. The first the first AI conference was in fifty six. Yeah. So you know, it's it's coming on for nearly sixty years. People have been trying to uh, you know fulfill this dream of creating uh, intelligent machines and and have not succeeded. Now you may argue, well. That's because in the past there wasn't enough hardware, not enough bits per second. And you know, maybe. But I'm cynical that the real reason is they don't know what intelligence is, right? So it's it's hard to, hard to model and engineer something when you don't know what the something is. So it's a definite requirement that we must sort of reverse engineer the brain before we're able to get there. Well, I I would say that. Ben would say no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he in gets quite opinion. passionate about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. 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 I'm. I'm. I mean, Ray Kurzweil, for example, he's. You know, he takes that route. He, he says probably yes. uh, simulating the brain is the way to go, and I. I. I agree. So. So. I, you know, I'm anticipating this great wedding between, you know, the effects of Moore's law. So the, these fabulous capacities of of near future electronics, plus, uh, you know, near future knowledge coming from neuroscience. And, the, mm -hmm. and like, have you heard of a guy? In fact, if you haven't interviewed him. Uh, might be a really good candidate. Have you heard of a guy called Markram? Henry Markram? Henry Markram, yes. He's the, the head of the Blue Brain Project. I've invited oh. him a couple of times, but he hasn't responded. Yeah, he's a bit of a prickly guy, <laughs> being frank. Uh, if you like, I, I could try to, uh, I could email him. Like, uh, I've, that would be I've, fantastic. I would really appreciate it. I, I had a couple of other people who emailed him uh, to sort of... Uh, uh, Jog him. Yeah. Pr 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 promote my show. I mean, to to right. to sort of invite right. him on my show, but you never know. Maybe we're okay. reaching well, the critical mass. <laughs> um, ben Ben and I, uh, what a year, a bit over a year ago, we we came out with the planet's first special issue in a, in an academic journal on artificial brains, and so in that journal were articles summarizing state of the art artificial brains in the world and uh, we thought that Markram's uh, blue blue brain yeah. project was the sexiest on the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, some of the claims he's making, now he's he's a really, well he's both, he's, he's both a, a hardware um, yeah, electronics expert to some extent, and definitely a neuroscience guy. That's his background, neuroscience. But he, mm -hmm. he's, you know, he's so bright, he can do both. Now, he's claiming by uh, 2018, uh, using Moore's Law and uh, IBM, who, who've been funding him, uh, they they will give him like the next generation of super-duper computer. Yeah. And he's cla claiming by 2018, uh, he will have at least the the full cortex of the rat brain modeled in in hardware and possibly even the human brain but that's that's sort of like a thousand times more but yeah uh you know you, you can see where things are going the technology is just the progress in technology is just so fabulous that sooner or later you know all, all this technology will end up in companies you, you know you'll get a, a shift from r to d you know research to development and then people suddenly will start noticing that their home robots uh, are getting quite smart. You know, each year at, at each upgrade, they'll notice their home robots and their speaking machines and so on are getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And that's that's as I see it, that's the beginning of this what I call the species dominance debate. And it'll just heat up and heat up. 
by the way, uh, I don't know if it is because you are located in China or not, but today I'm getting a lot more loss of feedback, audio feedback than usually. So there's a, a lot more substantial chunks of our conversation that I am unable to hear in real time. So I hope that doesn't impact on the fluidity of our discussion here. But let us move on uh, with uh, the presumption that we have accomplished or we are very close to accomplishing, say within a few decades, uh, the level of artificial intelligence that you're talking about. So perhaps now is the time for, for us to go back to your concept of um, artilects and how that would play out in terms of dividing the world into cosmists and Terrans and cyborgs. So would you mind elaborating a little bit more on that for the viewers and listeners who are not familiar with your ideas? Okay. Now, uh, if, if the problem of deciphering the principles of the microcircuitry of the human brain, if, if that turns out to be a tougher, a tougher problem than we anticipate today, then it, it doesn't really matter much. It, it just delays things by another decade or two. So, so the issue you know, doesn't, you know, the issue of species dominance, you know, which, which species, human beings, should human beings remain the dominant, you know, meaning the most intelligent, the most powerful species, or should humanity decide to give up this status and give it to, to our machines? So I see that question as dominating our global politics this century because there's just so much at stake. What's at stake is the possibly the survival of the human species because uh, longer term, if humanity does decide to, to build these artilects, artificial intellects, and they, they truly do uh, reach their fabulous potential of like trillions of trillions of times above human capacities, mental capacities, then who's to say that, that in a highly advanced form, they might look upon human beings as, as a kind of inferior pest. You know, like if, if a mosquito lands on my arm, I don't think twice about slapping this miracle, if you think about it, this miracle of nanotechnology. Right? <laughs> I mean, we, we could not manufacture a mosquito. Yeah. I mean, if we could, you know, the guys who did that would get a Nobel Prize, right? I mean, we, we, just, we just slapped this damn thing because to us, in, in our human view of ourselves as the dominant species, we, we feel ourselves so superior to this uh, pest, this pest, the mosquito, that we just zap it and we kill it. Now, who's to say that in the future, if these machines, these, these godlike creatures, these artilects come into being, they may end up, uh, you know, treating us in the same way. Now, if it's sort of hard to judge what the time frame will be, I'd say it's very likely this century, you know, given, given the rate of exponential progress that we're making, both in electronics and neuroscience. But I, I'd say this issue will really come to head, come to fruition this, this century. So humanity has, has to make a decision. Now, let's say, zip, say 50 years into the future, uh, imagine that you know, with telecommunications and the internet speed doubles every year and English increasingly is becoming the world language. So, so imagine all that trend uh, runs to saturation and virtually everybody speaks the world language, you know, their, their local national language and the world language. Then ideas travel far more fluidly and easily across the planet 
And as a result of that, you get increasingly a kind of cultural homogenization. You know, everyone's pretty much the same you know, with, with absorbing the best ideas that the world has to offer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, what's one of, one of my interests, um, so then you get a kind of global state, the, the probability of, of a, a global state being formed, which is much easier to do if you have a culturally homogenized planet. So imagine, I don't know, 50 whatever years in the future, some uh, globin, that's uh, the label of this, I call it globa, right, ending in the letter A because so many countries and continents uh, end in the letter A, like your, your country and my first country, Australia, Canada, America, Asia, Africa, right, so ending, ending in the letter A. So imagine some globin politician uh, thinking about, well, if we, by we I mean humanity, if, if we decide to build these artilacs, what, what are the possible consequences? Well, even if the risk is like one, one part in a million or a billion that these machines may turn against us, you, as, a, as a globin politician, you're not going to take that risk, right? The, the only risk you'll take is zero. So, uh, so that, that policy, which, which I label Terran, so it's based on the word terra. That's not terra as in terrorist. It's terra as in the earth, right? Terra, like terra firma. So, um, so these Terrans, their policy would be that human beings should remain dominant species. Now, now today this issue is it's a bit science fiction-like to most people, but to the techies, you know, the, the intelligists, you're right, the, the guys working in artificial intelligence, artificial brains, uh, like like myself. For us, it's more and more real, right? It's uh, we, we see the writing on the wall. So we're seriously starting to talk about this. And your your show is based on this premise, right? It's, this is probably, well, well, I wouldn't say even probable. This, this issue is the number one dominant question of our century, of our historical era, right? Are we, as human beings, are we going to replace ourselves? That's that's the issue at stake this uh, this century. Okay. Now, so the, I, I can imagine these Terran politicians will just insist that uh, to, to ensure that the risk of uh, human beings being taken over by, by a superior species is zero is that they're never built in the first place. So, but then, <laughs> then, then I need to talk about the other group. Well, actually, there are three, but you know, the, the main other one, uh, call them Cosmists. That's based on the word cosmos and, and you know, the universe. Now, that, that's a deliberate choice because if you're, if you're a cosmist, by definition, you are in favor of humanity building these, these artifacts because building these, these godlike creatures is a kind of religion almost. I mean, it, it would be a science-based religion. But but it has many of the characteristics of a of a traditional religion, right? It creates, you, you, because you'd be God building, you know, these yeah. these creatures would be just so fabulous, so vastly, you know, hugely astronomically superior to what human beings are. That they, they'll be effectively godlike. So to the cosmos, building these things is is sort of like a religion. It, it would generate a, a sense of awe, you know, a a w e. Uh, a sense of purpose. Uh, you, you would see humanity then as uh, a kind of stepping stone, like like a rung on the ladder of, of upward evolution. You're creating these godlike creatures that would be so powerful they they could, like you know they they would think a million times faster than we do 
because they'd be thinking at electronic speeds and maybe they could think even faster. If you, if you go to like femtotech and atotech and zetotech and all these future techs that are coming, they, they could think even faster. They, they could have effectively unlimited memory, right? Um, you know, because they, they could just uh, put uh, huge amounts of uh, memory material together in, in sort of one place. And they'll uh, be immortal, which is where the religion that, idea comes in through. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they would be immortal. I mean, if you're going to build these things, why on earth, why on earth would you program in mortality, right? <laughs> and if they're smart, they, they very quickly unprogram, yeah. unprogram it out of themselves, right? So, um, so you've got the, this other group, uh, and I, I mean, there's lots of uh, arguments in, in their favor. I mean, I, I can imagine in, in the fairly near future, there will be lots of uh, philosophers getting on the bad wagon, uh, writing arguments in favor of uh, cosmism. That's the ideology of, of, of the cosmists, the people who want to build these godlike machines. So, uh, so the first one, sort of given it to you, it's sort of like the big picture argument, right? Yeah, you uh, can argue uh, Carl Sagan was definitely a cosmist. Yeah, well, in some ways, I suppose it goes back centuries, right? If yeah, you, absolutely. You really start, you know, if you look at it as, as a historian, I mean, the yeah, basic yeah. notions, you know, the Nietzsche's Superman in some ways and, and so on. <clears throat> so, uh, well, I mean, look at the broad, I mean, as broadly as we can, uh, big picture. We, we, you know, human beings, we live in a universe that is... 13.7 billion years old, right? We, we know that now, yeah. only in the last few years. So we know the age of the Big Bang, when the Big Bang occurred. We also know the age of our solar system. It's about 4.6 billion years old. So that means out, yeah, I'm getting this in the, in the video, out there are of the order in our, in our universe, in our cosmos, there are something like a trillion trillion stars, right? That's the big picture. That's the big reality. And it's and they're billions of years older than our solar system. And we now know, you know, astronomy knows that most solar systems, if, if at least they're at least second generation, you know, they, they have they have the higher elements besides just hydrogen and helium. So if they're second generation or older. Very probably, they will have planets, right? Pla planets are just dross. They're, they're like the garbage <laughs> of, of uh, first-generation stars. You know, they, these first-generation stars, they, they convert their hydrogen and helium into higher elements, and then they explode, and they spew out all this crap. And then the second-generation stars, they include some of that crap, and that it's heavier, heavier elements. So they, they tend to spin around the edges, around the, the main sun in the middle, and they form the planets. So the planets are basically first-generation stars as crap, right? <laughs> the dross. Anyway, so uh, a lot of those star systems out there are billions of years older than ours, right? So you, pr you probably see where I'm going with this. Now, one of the greatest discoveries of the 19th century was that the laws of physics and chemistry are the same throughout the universe. And we, we know that from uh, you know, studying the light from, from other stars, distant stars. So now that we know that there are planets you know, virtually everywhere, I mean, we're discovering them almost daily now with, with latest technologies, exoplanets. So, uh, and we also know that water, you know, H2O, is a very common substance in the universe. 
So the and maybe I don't know maybe a tenth of planets uh, within the so-called habitable zone, where where H two O, where the temperature is not so hot that it just you know the water boils off, or it's not too cold that it's frozen hard, you know, frozen solid. So if the water is liquid form, and that may be the case in about a tenth of planets, well you've got a zillion zillion planets out there, and a tenth of a zillion zillion is still a zillion zillion, right? <laughs> so you know. Highly likely, uh, at least bacteria-type life forms are probably extremely commonplace in the universe. And then uh, I guess, and here's you get. Have you heard of Drake's Drake's equation? Yes. Yes. So Drake would say, well, then a certain percentage of those, perhaps, uh, you you get multicellular forms, and because it's evolutionary advant- advantageous to to do that, so you get higher and higher intelligence. So for all we know. Um, there are zillions of highly advanced civilizations out there that are billions of years older than we are. And, and here's Carl Sagan's vision, because that's all it is at the moment, speculation. Maybe, maybe these uh, highly advanced um, civilizations out there that are billions of years older than we are, maybe they've connected up. Right? There's, mm-hmm. there's only finite distances between them. So who knows? Maybe they've connected up. And there's a whole hyper-civilization of... Uh, advanced civilizations out there, and and we as human beings, we're too primitive, you know, because we're billions of years younger. We are simply too primitive to join the club, so to speak. Now, if you're interested, I have a whole other theory that uh, I'm trying to uh, get out. And uh, I personally, I think SETI is the wrong way to go. Uh, I'm I think SIPI, S-I-P-I, is is the way to go. Uh, do Do you want me to elaborate on that a little bit? Well, uh, surely my only concern is that time is advancing and um, ah. I'd like to, to go back to our original thought about the division okay, of humanity okay. to, to cosmists and Terrans and, and uh, cyborgs and uh, I just want to finish that line of reasoning before okay. we go okay. somewhere yes, else. Yes. Sorry, I, I, you know, I'm known for drifting. <laughs> yeah, so, so perhaps very, we, can, we can kind of increase the pace too. I have a very lateral thinking type of mind. Okay. Because right, we only so, have about 15 yeah, or yeah, 20 yeah, minutes tops. Yeah, okay, I understand. Okay, so, uh, okay, so go, go into the 2020s when, you know, assuming uh, the assumptions I've been making are correct, that uh, I, I see the 2010s, that's this decade, as the, the, the decade of massive research, you know, large-scale, widespread research on artificial brains because Moore's law is allowing it. Right? These artificial brain projects are just popping up like mushrooms mm-hmm. all over the planet. Yeah. And assume, assume in the 2020s, so the next decade, uh, things shift away from R, you know, research, to D, development. And then you see uh, huge companies uh, set up that uh, provide uh, products and, and gadgets to people based on the technologies of these artificial brains. And the biggest one, very probably, will be uh, home robots, the, the, the home robot industry. So if, if you ask people how much money would they be prepared to spend on a generally intelligent and useful home robot, and the answer is uh, usually, oh, more than for a car. Right? Not not as much as a house, but certainly they they would pay more money uh, than for a car if it were truly useful. You know, could do all the household tasks. Mm-hmm. So 
so you're talking a major industry, right? Look, look worth you know over a, literally a trillion dollars a year worldwide. So huge, huge industries. Okay, now as the 2020s progress and maybe into 2030s, you'll very probably notice a trend. You know, with such a big industry and governments putting, you know, investing a lot of money in into these industries, you will obviously get progress. And every year or so, a new model will come out. And so, uh, as people buy their second uh, model, the, you know, the, the second version, the third version, the fourth version, they and virtually everybody will notice a trend, and that is the intelligence, the, the artificial intelligence level of these machines keeps rising. So I, I sort of, I don't know if you can see this, <laughs> like the upper hand, that's, that's human intelligence level, right? Mm-hmm. And and the lower one here, that's uh, let's say current, well future current, <laughs> uh, machine level intelligence. Now, as the home robots get smarter and smarter every year, as as uh, artificial brain technology and science improves, so so that means the home robot intelligence level will go up and up and up and up and up. Now, that will be clear to billions of people around the world. And so you can imagine as a consequence of that, uh, people with their own first-hand experience seeing for themselves that their their own home robots are getting smarter and smarter every year, that will then raise a whole bunch of questions like, well, sort of obvious, right? So will these machines become as intelligent as human beings? Could could they become more intelligent than human beings? Is is that a good thing? Is that not dangerous? Should should there be like global legislation to put a, an upper limit on the level of artificial intelligence, so so that they're not a threat to human beings? So you know, it's all these questions uh, being hotly debated, and they're already being debated amongst the techies because you know we we can see the writing on the wall. So, so these issues are already, I mean, there are action groups uh, like Humanity Plus, uh, Transhumanism and, and so forth uh, on the Internet, you know, interest groups on the Internet talking about these issues hotly. But the issue is not quite yet mainstream. Uh, you know, people like you are helping that come, up, come about. You're, uh, well, there are various phases you know, in, the, in the development of, of this issue. Like phase zero is when just nothing, you're not even aware of the issue. Phase one I call the intellectuals crying in the wilderness phase. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty much the 80s. And then in the 90s and now uh, increasingly interest groups, you know, larger numbers of people getting together in, in groups and organizations and, and discussing issues. And then phase three will be mainstream, you know, when it gets on uh, the main media. And it's, it's getting that way now, like next year, uh, 2013, there will be two major Hollywood movies, blockbusters coming out. Uh, Steven Spielberg is directing... One of them called uh, Robopocalypse. <laughs> you can guess from the title what it's about, right? And the other one, I'm not allowed to tell you what it's about because I signed an NDA. All I, all I can tell you, uh, oh, an NDA is a non-disclosure agreement. All I can tell you is that it's it's by another major Hollywood studio and it, it will also be out in the summer, well, Northern Hemisphere summer of 2013. So, so, so the, on, on the same, you know, similar theme. And I, I'm the technical advisor to this movie. Mm-hmm. So hopefully by 2014, uh, this issue of species dominance should be much more mainstream. And then phase four, 
will be the politics. You know, once once large numbers of people, uh, you know, become alarmed. So, so especially in the twenties, twenties and thirties, I see as uh, you know, as the IQ gap between human level and machine level, as as that gap closes, then I see the alarm bells going off. You know, left and right, uh, people will start taking sides. The the politicians will start getting involved because people will start getting very very worried. That uh, maybe these machines, if they do become uh, very intelligent, could could potentially in the future become a threat. So now, at there's what a third stage? group. Yeah, go ahead. There's a third group, and they're they're called the cyborgists. They're they're, they're human beings, and their argument is well, I imagine I'm a cyborgist. Uh, the argument is, I as a human, I would love to be an artelect god. I would love to be immortal and, and a million trillion times more intelligent and uh, be able to leave the earth and explore the universe and be a, you know, a cosmic being and godlike. I, I would love to be that. So um, the, the, uh, the arguments of the cyborgists, they're the people, you know, humans, who want to become themselves cyborgs. Now, that word is short for cybernetic organism. In other words, part machine, part human. So, so the idea is these cyborgists become cyborgs and you know, they can do that by adding uh, intellectual hardware, if you like, to, to their own brains and whatnot. So then you get into the um, Kurtzweil scenario of having little nano-sized robots in your bloodstream and they flow all over your body and get into your brain and make connections with the neurons in your brain and eventually replace them. Now, you know, the, big, the big question now is, it, it becomes a philosophical question. If you start doing that, the vastly superior capacities of the technology sooner or later raises the question, to what extent are you still you, right? Because if, if the machine capacity is like a trillion, trillion times above the human capacity, you, you only have to add one little grain of sand to your own brain before you are no longer human, right? You, you're effectively an intellect. You may look human because your body is still human, but in terms of mental capacity, you, you are 99.9999999999 whatever percent intellect. And only zero point zero zero one percent human. So, so from the point of view of the Terrans, the the people who are opposed to building artifacts, for them there's no distinction, uh, longer term, between a pure machine, you know, a pure artifact, and a highly advanced cyborg, simply because the capacity of the technology is so great that uh, what's the difference between a hundred percent? And ninety-nine point and and you know a thousand nines, right? It's it's effectively the same. So I see the Terrans going on the war path uh, to you know for the sake of the survival, potential survival of human beings, and they will be ideologically opposed, politically opposed, and eventually militarily opposed to the other two groups, the the cosmists, the people who dream of you know creating these godlike machines. And the cyborgists who, who want to become gods in a sense, want to become artifacts themselves, 
through through a series of steps, you know, up upgrading themselves from human to artelect. Now, you said that there would be virtually no distinction between the cyborgs and the cosmists, in the or, or the, the cyborgs and the machines, uh, from the perspective of the Terrans. Um, but I want to perhaps just bring another consideration, and that's the fact that for the last few thousand years, we have failed, to my knowledge, to come up with a definition of humanity, a definition of what it means to be human, which is accepted, commonly accepted by all humans. And, and therefore, the argument, my argument could be something like, how could you lose something that you don't know what it is, that you can't define? And maybe being human is a lot more transient than we think it is. Maybe there is no essence. And if we are a process rather than an entity, which is ongoing process, then perhaps you could argue that being becoming a cyborg would be the next step of human evolution, not only evolution, but human evolution. And therefore, uh, you know, both the intermediary and the ultimate step of becoming entirely machines, perhaps, would be just uh, transcending or bringing along our humanity to a different, different level of intelligence. Well, this, I mean, you, you, as I see it, what you've done now, you have really put your finger on, on the issue. I, you know, this, this is the nuts and bolts of the debate I see occurring in, say, 2020s, 2030s, as, as the species dominance debate really gets going. So <clears throat> now it, it's hard to predict, right? It's, because it's complex. You know, there are all kinds of issues involved. And people take sides in for all kinds of different reasons. I, I, personally, I'd like to see the creation of a new branch of sociology that looks into these issues, because it is complex. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, what, what percentage of people would uh, find these uh, the growing number of cyborgs as utterly alien. Like, like, like for example, I'll give a couple of uh, cases where uh, a lot of people are maybe very worried about this. Imagine, I don't know, 2060s, 70s, whatever. Imagine you're a young woman and you're, you, you have to make a decision. You're, you've just given birth to your first child and there are cyborgs left and right. They're, they're all around you. There are billions of them. Right? So you're you're wondering what uh, what characteristics uh, you'd like your new newborn child to have as a cyborg, and so you you get some advice and you're told oh this 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 and this. So you you you, you tell the surgeons or whatever to you know, okay cyborg eyes cyborg the verb cyborg my baby okay, and then the baby's like two years old three years old. And the mother really starts to realize, hey, this, this child of mine looks on me as a total moron. I, it, it just doesn't want, it's not interested in communicating with me. Because you know, I'm thinking a million times slower than it is. It's absorbing the world's knowledge at 10 times over every second kind of thing. Why, why would it, it, right? It's not human. Maybe that's actually a question. It is not human. 
right? It's, it's a cyborg. It's an artelect in human disguise, and it's just not interested in human beings. So from the point of view of the mother, in a sense, she feels she has killed her baby. Right? How is that so, different from the generational divide that we're experiencing nowadays? Oh, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like with or, young kids and even between me and young kids, I am kind of old fashioned compared to the you know, early teenagers, let alone older people. Uh, who are, I okay, mean, the well, kids not, are glued to their cell phones and they're communicating usually in Canada here mostly with via texting mm. rather than talking. Multiply that by a trillion. Okay? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay, yes. so so and another one is, um, so let's say similar time frame. Uh, imagine you're an older parent mm. and your adult kids come to you and say, uh, Dad, uh, we've decided to cyborg. Right? We, we, we're going to become cyborgs mm -hmm. and, and, and advanced cyborgs. And so uh, you know, going something to the other happens. side, they're betraying yeah, the human so, race. Yeah. So the, the parents would then feel that they've lost their kids. Yeah, I mean, exactly. imagine, imagine the emotions involved. So you know, for all kinds of uh, reasons, you know, similar to the two I've just given, I, I can imagine uh, the, the level of alarm. So I, I just see society dividing bitterly into pro and con of all these technologies that are coming down. And a lot of people, now maybe it's hard to define, but a lot of people will start saying that, you know, as uh, cyborging becomes increasingly common and popular, a lot of people, a fair proportion of humanity will say that uh, we, you know, the human species, we are losing our humanness, right? H humanness, whatever it is, is getting lost. Mm -hmm. right? And uh, I, I see them, and I label them the Terrans, and I see them organizing. They they will say, "Hey, look, if we if we as human as as Terrans, if we decide to stay that way, and, and we, if we refuse to upgrade ourselves too much, maybe a little at first, it'd be nice to have a bit more memory and have internet direct connection in your brain and all, you know, stuff like that. But but once the technology really starts to bite, then uh, you're you're no longer human. You're something else, right?" So imagine the, the Terrans then saying, uh, well, look, if we Terrans decide to stay more or less as we are, and the, the, these, these cyborgists and the, the, the cosmos and the athletes themselves, you know, the pure machines, if they keep advancing way, way beyond our human, our Terran capacities, then potentially they become a threat, right? So they may become so advanced, they may look on us as a pest, so it's a matter of survival. It's a, it's a matter of species survival. Now, if you're a politician, what do, what do politicians do? You know, they they you, know, you probably heard this famous phrase. You know, they they hope for the best, and they plan for the worst. Now, what is the worst worst case scenario, for, from the point of view of the Terrans? Well, that is that the 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 advanced cyborgs and the artelects, they just simply decide to wipe out humanity. Now, to ensure that the risk of that happening, you know, that worst case scenario, that the risk of that happening is zero, is the, 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 the Terrans, the Terran politicians will argue, is that it's to never happen in the first place. Now, you're talking two very powerful ideologies that I see dominating 21st century politics. On the one hand, you have the Terrans, and for them, their Terranism as an ideology, that for them is survival of the human species right absolutely top priority and existential they, threat yeah 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 the the, the threat of of extermination 
at, yeah. at the hands of the... And it, it will be a very, very powerful argument. And on the other hand, you have a quasi-religious argument almost, and hence also very powerful, on, on the part of the, the cosmists who, who want to build artifacts and, and a certain variant, if you like, of cosmism, which is uh, cyborgism. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of, in my view, a minor variant because effectively an artifact and a cyborg, an advanced cyborg, are the same thing. Yeah, there machine. would be merging eventually with different yeah, yeah, flavors yeah, yeah. and colors of the so, sort of. So, so I see the Terrans just lumping together these these two ideologies, you know, yeah. of cyborgism and and um, cosmism. They'll, they'll just be two variants of the same thing from the point of view of the Terrans. So, so I can imagine as the species dominance debate heats up, you know, you know, should should humanity build these artifacts or not? Then I see the Terrans uh, forming groups, political groups. You know, this issue will be so dominant, so powerful, that whole political parties will be based on this issue, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Instead of having, you know, should we have democratic parties or socialist parties or communist parties? Because, because they, they were the dominant issue. You know, who, who should own capital? Who should own the machines? That, that was the dominant issue in the 19th and 20th century. But in the 21st century, the dominant question, dominant issue will be over species dominance, uh, you know, as I see it. And so there'll be political parties formed over, over this issue. And so, uh, and then, you know, they'll, they'll take uh, political positions and eventually military, military positions. Uh, the Terrans will simply uh, try to ban uh, you know, the development of these artleks beyond uh, beyond a certain uh, level of artificial intelligence, but that that will be opposed by this other group. For for them, it's a kind of religion. They they will look on the Terrans as absolutely narrow-minded, you know, small-minded, you know, inferior, you know, blah, 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 because there's a whole universe out there, right? The the big picture, and you know, they, and and they will do whatever's necessary to, to fulfill their big dream. And I mean big, right? It's, it, that's why I call them cosmists, right? That's, yeah. that's their perspective, the, the cosmos. There's, there's a much, much bigger picture out there. And so you have these two bitterly opposed ideologies that uh, eventually, you know, for the sake of the survival of the human species, the Terrans will be prepared to go to war. And because, and here's a bit of strategy, they cannot wait too long. Like um, uh, Ray Kurzweil, uh, he, you know, he he has a rather colourful phrase. He says, "If a war comes between the Terrans and the Cosmos stroke cyborgists, that would be like a war between the U.S. Army." And here's his colourful metaphor: between the U.S. Army and the Amish. Uh, I don't know if all your listeners are familiar with who the Amish are, but they're a religious sect in America. And they have these weird ideas that you're not allowed to use any technology that's more modern than 19th century. So literally, they're, they're riding around in horse and buggy. They don't have telephones. They don't have the internet. They're living in the 19th century. So you can imagine, you know, if there's a war between them and, and the modern U.S. Army, well, to use uh, Ray's, Ray Kurzweil's phrase, no contest, right? Now, now that's, a, that's a strong argument. So, uh, actually, let me take some issue with that argument because my actual specialty was armed conflict, and uh -huh. uh, that's how I got into artificial intelligence because my thesis was in on artificial intelligence in times of war, and I was looking at the drone usage in Iraq and Afghanistan, 
and doing the research there got me involved into the whole singularity community and gave me the idea. But I can give you a number of examples from history where if you do not talk about an all-out war and you talk rather into what's called a counterinsurgency, counterinsurgency warfare or what people now call the war of a third kind or fifth generation of warfare in other estimates, then in numerous occasions, uh, people from different stages of development or parties from different stages of development have come to a stalemate. And you can look at, for example, the Vietnam War, in which you have basically the Vietnamese were basically early 20th century or even 19th century technology. Uh, and yet the United States got defeated. And you can look at the insurgency in Afghanistan and the technology difference between the Taliban and the U.S. and the NATO allies is at least 100 years. And, and there are many other uh, cases from Africa during the colonization wars or from Southern Asia in which uh, as long as there's no all-out uh, decisive battle between the two parties, but rather it's a counterinsurgency kind of a warfare, then the weaker party, the one that's uh, more uh, obsolete, if you will, in, in its uh, weapons, has very good chance of resisting based on its tactics rather than weaponry. Uh-huh. Well, uh, so okay. so while I accept many of Ray's arguments, like that's not yeah. one of his best ones, in my opinion, okay. personally. Okay, well, you know, deb debatable. I, I suppose you could argue that uh, if you really, if you really wanted to, uh, why, well, personally, if when I, when I play the role myself of as a Terran politician, now let, let me say straight up. Because I haven't said it before, maybe I better commit myself. You know, which side of the fence Absolutely. am I on? Absolutely, I was going to ask you. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, privately, and uh, you know, in my heart, in other words, uh, obviously I'm cosmist, right? I, I think it would be tragic. I mean, I, I label it a cosmic tragedy mm -hmm. if if humanity decides to freeze the, the level of uh, evolutionary development on our planet to to the mere puny <laughs> puny underline puny human level, uh, you know, I, I, I see that as absolutely tragic, given the fabulous potential of what, what the artleks could become. But publicly, I'm both, right? So in a sense, I'm highly ambivalent. And I, know, I notice a lot of other people when I, you know, because I give a lot of talks, and people come up to me and, and say, you know, Hugo, I'm, I'm absolutely torn. I, I, I'm so ambivalent on this issue. On the one hand, I'm in awe, A-W-E, at the prospect of these artleks, these you know, godlike machines of what they could become. And there's a whole universe out there. And on the other hand, I'm absolutely horrified at the possibility of, of an artelect war between the Terrans and the, you know, the, the Cosmos stroke cyborgs. Because and I haven't mentioned it before, but imagine there is a major war over this species dominance issue, you know, who or what should be dominant species, then you're talking about a major war with 21st century technologies, right? And so the scale of the killing, I mean, if you, if you draw a graph and you extrapolate up the graph of, of the number of people killed in major wars over the past two centuries, 
then you end up predicting that if there's a major passionate war in the 21st century, let, let's say second half of 21st century, with 21st century weaponry, probably nanotech-based, right, then the scale of the killing is not like hundreds of millions uh, people dying, as, as was the case in the 20th century. It'll be up into the billions, right? So uh, maybe in 10, well, <laughs> we only have 7 billion people on the planet. So, so I, I talk about giga death. So it's yeah. absolutely horrific. So on the one hand, well, I put it in the form of a slogan. So, so when I ask, I ask people to vote quite often in, in talks that I give. I ask them at the end of the talk to, to vote. And uh, keep it simple, you know, sh should humanity go cosmist or should humanity stay Terran with humans mm -hmm. as dominant species? So, and I express that question in, in the form of a slogan, and it's this. Uh, do we, you know, we as humanity, do we build gods or do we build our potential exterminators? And I find in practice that question just divides people. And pe people come up to me and, and say, you know, they're, they're so torn on this issue. Now, so am I. I'm torn. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be like the grandfather of giga death, right, in a <laughs> sense. I mean, that'd be terrible. But, uh, but on the other hand, uh, I'm just drawn to this prospect of, uh, of creating the intellect. Now, now, here's where push really comes to shove. Because imagine, imagine let's sort of play a bit of a game. Imagine now you're, you're a Terran. You're a dyed-in-the-wool Terran, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and let's say I'm playing the role of Cosmist. And then you say to me, yeah, but you Cosmist, you're monsters. Because by actually building these artifacts, that means implicitly or even explicitly, you're prepared to take the risk that humanity gets wiped out as a result. You're prepared to take that risk. Therefore, you are, from the Terran viewpoint, you're a monster. Therefore, you are exterminable, and we will exterminate you. We will root out every last one of you. We, we will go on the biggest witch hunt that humanity's ever known. And anyone even expressing, just, just in a phrase, any approval of cosmist ideology will be wiped out. We, we will create a global police state where anyone even thinking cosmist will get exterminated. And why? Because, and, and here's the argument, the Terran argument, because it's better, it's, it's the lesser moral evil to wipe out a few, you know, it's a matter of numbers, wipe out a few million cosmists, cyborgists, than to risk the extermination, so not of millions, of but billions of, of humanity. That's, that's the political argument. Yeah, that's a very that's, utilitarian kind of an argument. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But I, but I see the Terran politicians taking it. I, yeah. I see them arguing that way in the future. And, and it's not... Oh, here's, here's a... All this discussion, you know, all these arguments that, that are coming, I, I do not see this as some vague... And this is like a takeaway take message from this program, if you like. I do not see all this, these kinds of arguments as some vague 22nd century science fiction, maybe. I see them as very real. They're just a few decades away, you know, given the rate of progress in technologies and neuroscience. They're just a few decades away. So if your listeners, watch, viewers, if they're young, if they're, say, 20s, 30s, yeah. this... This issue is something that they will be confronted by within their own lifetimes. Now, I, I'm mid-60s, so I, I, I will definitely see the 
species dominance debate rage. I, I expect to live another 20, 30 years. So mm -hmm. I'll definitely see the debate rage. And in fact, one of my life goals is to try to promote that discussion. You know, it's one of the reasons why I'm on the media so often, trying, yeah. trying to shift this whole debate up from phase two to phase three, you know, from, from the action groups phase to the Public mainstream discourse. phase, you know, the mass, the mass media. So, yeah. uh, you know, major movies and stuff will, will definitely do that. And soon, like, like just in a, in a couple of years. Yeah. So, so that's the major take-home message. It means that uh, humanity is going to have to start taking this issue very seriously because it's going to be with us within just a, you know, a handful of decades, within the lifetime of most of your viewers. And that is scary as hell. Mm -hmm. So let me, I think we're kind of very getting very close to the, to the end of our interview. So let me ask you this then. Is there any good news in all of this? Uh, I could take a very selfish answer. <laughs> I, can say, I can say I'm glad I'm alive now because I will live my lifetime, my lifespan will exist between the two world wars, right? The, so you wouldn't have world. to actually deal with that clash of uh, yeah, Karens and cosmists. I won't see it. I mean, I'll see the debate. I'll definitely see the debate. But, but what I doubt about non-selfishly then to the bigger okay, picture? Okay, there, there are scenarios where humanity escapes, right? It's, it's not difficult to dream up scenarios where, where that happens. For example, I'll just give you one. You, you're probably familiar with the concept of slow takeoff and fast takeoff. Mm -hmm. Slow takeoff is uh, where it takes quite a long time for the machines to become very, very intelligent and, and hence very threatening. And fast takeoff is that they're... They appear so fast that there's no time for human politics to yeah. unfold. Yeah. Right? Okay, so imagine there's a fast takeoff. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly these artifacts, imagine, I don't know, some lab somewhere, suddenly uh, you know, some programmer puts in the right semicolon in the right place, and suddenly click off it goes. And, it, and uh, it, it, it maybe even surprising the programmer, he doesn't quite understand what he did. But Let's call him Ben Gyorzo, for example. Yeah, yeah, okay, imagine. Okay, so so these machines, suddenly they exist, right? And uh, they become super smart very, very fast because they, uh, you know, they, they improve themselves and, and, the, and the improvement improves itself and so on and so on. So you get this sort of exponential escalating artificial intelligence making itself smarter and smarter. And then very quickly it decides, hey, w w why are we Arteleks existing on this hick planet? You know, this, this little piece of nothing when there's a whole universe out there. So let, let's get out of here. So they just leave and just ignore humanity. And they do that very quickly. Now, that, that's a possibility. That is definitely one uh, fairly realistic scenario. But, and here's the gloom. Now, you asked for the opposite, but <laughs> here's the gloom. <laughs> Personally, the most realistic scenario, as, as I see it, right, it's just my own viewpoint, but, you know, of all these scenarios, the most realistic scenario I see is the worst. And the worst is that there's a slow takeoff, that humanity has lots and lots of time to think about this issue because uh, I'm, I'm thinking it will take several decades, probably three, four, five at least, to figure out how the brain works. It's, it's a massive problem, extremely difficult problem, right? We have a, a quadrillion synapses in our brain and figuring out, you know, how all that works. 
So I, I think that it will be a slow takeoff. Even our, you know, our artificial brains will not you know, very, very rapidly become massively intelligent. I think that will take some time. Eventually, mm -hmm. yes, in perhaps mm -hmm. a few decades. So there will be enough time for human politics. Uh, the political parties will already have been formed. Uh, the, the Terrans will be planning for a first strike. Oh, I yeah, didn't mention that. Uh, the, the Terrans cannot wait too too long, right? Because if they do, the Artileks will exist. The cyborgs will be advanced. And then that, then it really would be no contest. Yeah. Therefore, simple logic says on the Terran part, viewpoint, that if they are to have any chance of winning a war, a species dominance war, they will have to first strike. And, you know, these, these arguments will be out there. But, but the cosmists, the cosmos politicians, they too... They will be aware of these arguments of the Terrans, and they're not going to sit around twiddling their thumbs and be exterminated, right? So they too, they will be preparing. And so you'll have two more or less equally intelligent uh, sides, you know, human or quasi-human sides, uh, both preparing for a major extermination war. I mean, the, the Terrans will be out to exterminate. I mean, not, not just kill you know, a few million or whatever, but just to the last man. You know, to just get rid of you know, the biggest witch hunt ever to, to get rid of the, uh, the, the cosmos and the cyborgists. But, of course, they will defend themselves because they're still largely human you know, in the early days. And so you have all the options here, all, all the prerequisites, uh, and, and with 21st century weaponry for the most passionate, worst, biggest war that humanity has ever had. And I, I label that war the Artelect War. So it's a very, very gloomy scenario. And, and when I try to be cold-eyed about it, uh, see, I, I don't like to be swept along by optimism. I, I find the, I'm critical of the Americans that way. They're just too childishly optimistic. I, I think it's genetic in, in you know, people who selected themselves in becoming Americans were, were the optimists in Europe. You know, if you're, how do you become an American or a Canadian or Australian or... You, know, you have to be optimistic. You have to think, oh, well, if I make this huge change, uproot myself from my old culture and friends and family, and you, know, you, you have to believe strongly that your future life is going to be better. Right? Yeah. So you need yeah. a, the genes, the mentality that, that makes that happen. So uh, you know, I, I have a rather, you'll be blunt here, I have a rather low opinion of the political savvy of American techies. They, they, they're just not political enough, in my view. So I'm waiting with great impatience for phase three to occur so that this huge issue uh, gets out um, into the mainstream. And then the social science guys can start bringing their expertise, you know, their, their way of looking at the world, especially the historians, the political scientists, the philosophers, psychologists, sociologists, people like that, so that they can... Um, like, for example, I live in China, and within living memory, easily, uh, the greatest holocaust that ever existed in the, well, in the 20th century, even, even bigger than you know, what happened in Russia or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, under, under Mao, under the Mao Zedong regime, about 45 million Chinese starved to death in the Great Famine, and uh, all the purges and so forth. So something, something like about 70, maybe even 80 million Chinese died. Uh, in in the 60s. The Cultural the 60s. Revolution, yeah. Yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah, millions died. So you add it all together. So, you know, that's, that's within the living memory of many Chinese. And if you're European, if you're an old European, 
you have the memory of the Second World War, somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died. So, so the old, I'm generalizing here a bit, but the old world cultures, they, they seem to have a, yeah, they have a, a, a longer cultural memory than the Americans who have a very poor sense of history because they have so little of it, right? So the, I, I do notice this correlation, this difference in attitude uh, towards the level of optimism Almost childlike optimism. I, I like. I have great respect for uh, Ray Kurzweil's tech ability. Right, he's a genius techie. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to his politics, I, I just see him as a child. I, I, you know, I don't. I I can't take him politically seriously because he's just way too optimistic. He's not giving enough weight to the negative side, and the negative side obviously exists. And so, when uh, you know, when the social science guys get into the act and start talking about this huge issue, this issue of species dominance, then I see things balancing out more. It'll, it'll be uh, more nuanced. There'll, there'll be a, a better weighting between the pessimists and the, and the optimists. Mm -hmm. Or as, as I call them, the um, Jeremiahists. So I guess I'm a Jeremiahist. <laughs> and, and the Pollyannists. <laughs> Which is uh, people like Kurzweil and Ben Gersel also. He's he's you know he's quite optimistic, but I, I don't see it in those terms. I, I I just see the species dominance issue just uh, well blooming everybody. If there's one thing that I entirely agree with you absolutely is that I do agree in that the issue of artificial intelligence and how it relates to humanity in general would become a religious, spiritual, political, legal, philosophical issue that we would grapple with. And perhaps the solution or the, the decision we arrive at would determine our destiny as a species. So yeah. I, I do agree entirely with you on that. And uh, even though I'm not as pessimistic per the outcome, I mm. myself would give it probably 50-50 at least. Um, so, and, and I mean, even if the outcome, mathematically speaking, doesn't look good and is not in our favor, I mean, we can all give millions of examples in which, you know, a lower probability became a reality for one reason or another. Yeah, well, I see, in a sense, we're all guessing at the moment. This, this is why I, I, I mean, about, about a year ago, I... I thought it would probably be a good thing to start getting some sociological data on, on these issues. It's probably a bit too soon because most people aren't sufficiently informed yet to, to have an informed opinion. Mm -hmm. So so when I ask them, like I confront them with with the question, you know, please vote, <laughs> and, and they have no clue, so they're voting randomly. So maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm getting a kind of 50-50 vote. But once the issue's gone mainstream and, you know, lots of documentaries and the media's full of it, then, then people would be much better informed. And then it'll be very interesting to get a kind of uh, sociological breakdown, like like what percentage of people are Terran, what percentage are cyborgists, what percentage are Cosmos and, and so forth. And and are there correlations between, say, age? Are, are young people religion, more like... Religious beliefs Yeah, and the so religious on, yeah. right, the religious, you know, the, the religious left, you know, the, whatever. So... Uh, I, I would like, like if there are some sociologists uh, listening, watching right now, and imagine you're a grad student, 
and you're hunting around for a really hot, interesting topic to, to do a PhD on, well, here's one, right? And there's a real need uh, to, you know, to go out into society, maybe in a year or two, once, once this issue's gone mainstream, with, especially with two major Hollywood, issue, uh, Hollywood uh, blockbusters coming out next year. So probably around 2014, 2015 might be a, a, a good time for a sociology, you know, the artelex sociology, as I call it, to, to get off the ground. And then, then we won't be guessing so much. Like, for example, Ray Kurzweil, he thinks everybody, just everybody, is going to go cyborg. And who knows, maybe, maybe he's right. I don't think that he thinks that everybody would go cyborg, but I think he thinks that many, many would. And, and I would say, especially the younger generation, for sure it would be in the majority. And eventually... People who don't go cyborg would go extinct. So, one way or another, that's going to be the direction I think. Mm. So, I mean, I, unless some... there's that war that you're talking about, right, mm -mm. which mm. can turn the tide one way or another. Mm. But, but if we presume that the war doesn't manifest itself to the degree that we're talking about here, then I would say then the natural. Uh, death rate or the national mortality rate would make the the technological Amish obsolete. Yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah. Maybe. Now, uh, I started uh, yeah, nearly a year ago. I, I did my first survey, my first opinion poll, uh, on a fairly small scale because you know I don't I don't have lots of money. And the very first one I did was to a talk of uh, electronic engineers, you know, academics, professors, and students, and at, at uh, it was in Australia. And uh, this was the very first time I had done it, and I wasn't quite sure what I'd expect. But one of the questions was, you know, what do you consider? Do you consider a real possibility that you know there, there might be an an, an artelect war? And I was really shocked when uh, sixty percent of them said yes. They, they really thought that that was a real possibility. Yeah. And even amongst wow. the yeah yeah wow, <laughs> and even amongst the the ultra optimists like the trans transhumanists and the humanity plus now I've done one or two surveys with them mm -hmm. and even half of them you know the, the ultra optimists even half of them say that uh, the rise of the artlect uh, is is a, a real threat to the future survival of the human species about half of them agreed with that so you know it's 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 pretty shocking so um, so I, I think an essential step in this debate is is to get uh, sociological data mm -hmm. you know, once once it's gone mainstream. So so I appeal to any any of your viewers, if uh, if you're in that category of uh, sociology or psychology or a historian or a philosopher or whatever, to uh, to to get to get this data, you know, especially if you're a sociologist. Professor DeGaris, uh, we've been talking for about an hour and a half now, and I think it's time oh to, to bring our discussion to a close. Okay. Um, so just uh, as a closing thought, you, where can people go and find out more about you and your work, what you do? Uh, okay, well, just in a minute. Uh, what I do now, I'm, I'm no longer uh, making artificial brains. Uh, when before, before retirement two years ago, I was director of the artificial brain lab at uh, Xiamen University in uh, southeast China on the coast. 
And I was trying there to uh, build China's first artificial brain. And my approach was to evolve neural nets very fast in, in the latest hardware and put tens of thousands of them together. Each, each little neural net module had its own little job. So by connecting them up in interesting ways, you, you could make artificial brains. But what I do now is um, I study mathematics and physics to PhD level. Uh, I study a topic or even a chapter of a textbook, and then I video it and I put it up on YouTube. And my big ambition now is to YouTube about in the next 20, 20 odd years, uh, about literally 500 uh, graduate level in pure math and math physics uh, YouTube lectures and put, put them on. And I call the site for all these, you know, that contains all the links to all these YouTube uh, lectures. I call it Degaris MPC. M is MPC. There's three letters. So math, physics, computing. Now, it's mostly MP, mostly maths and physics, but there's quite a few, a couple of dozen uh, lectures on computer science. Okay, now if you want to go to the, the website, because one of the tabs on that website is uh, Degaris MPC, but there are lots of other issues, you know, like the Cosmos issue and masculism and various other things. Uh, the website is uh, uh, prof, which is short for, for, for professor, so prof, P-R-O-F, and then my name, and this is all one word, Prof Hugo, so H-U-G-O, and then my family name, De Garris, that's sort of a Frenchy sounding name, so D-E, and then G-A-R-I-S. So Prof Hugo De Garris, uh, dot, well, yeah, with the H-T-T-P colon double slash in front, of course. Yeah. So Prof Hugo De Garris dot, uh, WordPress, so W O R D P R E W -S, S dot com. Prof Hugo de Garris dot WordPress dot com. Professor de Garris, thank you very much for being here with us today. Well, <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> it, al <laughs> it always is. <laughs> thank you. It's been fun for me too. <laughs> Yeah.